We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spurs Up show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Today is Monday, August the 30th, 2021. Today's show, ladies and gents, boys and girls, welcome to game week. We have finally made it as we now sit just five days away from the beginning of the Shane Beamer era as the Gamecocks take on Eastern Illinois this Saturday at williams Bryce Stadium. Guys, I'll give my brief thoughts on that, Eastern Illinois, over the weekend. Also, we conclude the 2021 Position Unit Preview Series. Guys, today's show, we are breaking down the Gamecocks secondary heading in the 2021 football season. Guys, first things first, we'll look back at how the secondary fared a season ago. Also, we'll meet the secondary, talk most approved, best overall. Season will be successful. If And I'll give my overall grave of the Gamecocks defensive backs heading in the 2021 football season. Also, guys, we got news and notes. Your listener questions and a fantastic conversation, guys. A great interview. One of the best in the business. Tim Brando joins me for a phenomenal conversation. We talk South Carolina football, college football as a whole, the playoff, conference expansion, all of that and more, guys. It's a fantastic show. A great Monday, great day to have a day. And it's all brought to you by our friends over at Upstate Movers Group. Guys, Upstate Movers Group, superior moving service. They bring care and attention the companies can't offer because they're just too busy maintaining trucks and profiting off of them instead of focusing on service. Guys, service is what separates Upstate Movers Group from the competition. They're not a trucking company. They're a moving services company. And they're also employee-owned co-op. Their movers are paid twice the industry average, and everyone on the crew is invested in your success. They have dedicated professional crew members, and they also offer black glove service. They offer end-to-end packing services, custom crating and packaging for special items, and cleaning services as well. They're founded by Greenville Natives and University of South Carolina alumni, guys, so a Gamecock-owned small business. They also offer 20 years of project management moving experience, and they can offer logistics and solutions that traditional moving companies simply do not have the skills for. Guys, whether you're in the upstate or across the state of South Carolina, if you have any moving needs in 2021, be sure to check out our friends over at Upstate Movers Group. You can find them on social media, at Upstate Movers Group, or of course, if you have any, any other questions, go to their website, upstatemoversgroup.com. That's upstatemoversgroup.com. Be sure to check them out and tell them Chris from the Spurs Up Show sent you. Let's get it.
tailgating is back. Packed stadiums are back. Five podcasts per week are back. Gamecocks football is back. Folks, welcome to game week. Happy Monday. Hope you're all doing well. I'm Chris Phillips, host of the Spurs Up show. As always, appreciate you all tuning in. I hope this show finds you well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Whether, where, wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing, whether you're on the commute, you're in the office, you're on the job, you got the day off. Whatever it is, folks, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. I am fired up here on this Monday because, folks, this is not your average Monday. This is not your average podcast. We've made it. We've made it. After navigating the preseason, navigating the offseason, whatever you want to call it, we've been counting down the days to kickoff. All the way back from 100 days to now we are just five days away. But more importantly, we have made it to game week. The Gamecocks will play a football game on the field at Williams-Brice Stadium under the lights this weekend as South Carolina takes on the Eastern Illinois Panthers and begins a new chapter of Carolina football under Shane Beamer. Again, folks, thank you all so much for tuning in. I'm fired up, of course. Thank you all for your continued love and support, guys. We have got a packed week, like I said. First things first, in case you missed it, yes, we've been navigating the last couple of months with Monday, Thursday, podcasts we are back starting today to daily podcasts monday through friday five days a week the daily podcasts are back on top of that we also have the daily crow monday through friday noon to two on top of that we've also got live events and live shows out the freaking wazoo this week Wednesday, we're at 10 Roo, 5 to 7. Friday, we're with Cox by 90 at Hall's Chop House. Saturday, just announced yesterday, we are at Jay's Corner TSUS Live game day show at Jay's Corner 3 to 4. We'll be live out there right next to it. Finally confirmed and announced. Our TSUS tailgate will be at Seawells, spots 93 to 96. Again, guys, I'm fired up. I'm busting out the seams right now. I can't contain my excitement. And again, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm bringing some entertainment to your Monday. Because, again, I'm fired up. I'm excited. I'm ready to go. We actually get to talk about Gamecocks football on the field of play this week. Guys, before we get going really into everything, I do want to say this, by the way, over the weekend, in case you missed it, we were at the Thread Affair event at Noma Warehouse on Sunday afternoon, really all day Sunday, of course, at a live show from there. I just want to say thank you to the folks out at with Thread Affair and at Noma Warehouse that had us. Uh, you know, it was it was truly an honor and a privilege, and I, I was extremely grateful to have the opportunity to contribute and give back and support those dudes over at Threat Affair, and of course, the great venue, Noma Warehouse, having us out there. But again, I want to say thank you to all those who came out, who showed love, who showed support. There were a lot of great Gamecocks out there, people who showed love to the Spurs Up show and the merchandise. We had some merchandise out there. We were flinging stickers all over the place. So again, guys, Thank you, thank you, thank you to all those that came up, showed love, man. Thank you to all those that tuned into our show digitally as well. We had a great time, and I wanted to make sure I took a second to express my gratitude to everyone involved with Threat Affair, with Noma Warehouse. Had a really, really good time and appreciate them allowing the Spurs Up show to be a part 
of that fantastic event, guys. Again, a ton of great entrepreneurs, a ton of great vendors. And for those who showed up, I'm sure you left with your wallet a little lighter because there was a lot of dope stuff. I know I bought some Gamecock stuff. Shout out to my guys, Divine Vintage, B2ATL, uh, Soda City Thrifts, Fully Faded Vintage. Man, I could go on and on and on the list of these guys that uh, the entrepreneurial spirit, entrepreneurial spirit, I should say, flows through them. And again, I truly appreciate those guys, their love and support. Again, everyone involved with Threat Affair and Noma Warehouse, absolutely incredible time out there at that event. Guys, like I said, it is Game Week. Welcome to Game Week. Before we get going in the position at preview series, because we're wrapping this thing up, we're talking Gamecock secondary. I do want to give some quick thoughts, by the way. And, and I'm not someone who's going to sit here and spoil my prediction, if you will, for the game this week. And because, guys, like I said, we're back to five podcasts. So I'll give you guys the rundown. Today, of course, going to be a little bit, bit different. Normally on Mondays, we'll be talking game recap and takeaways and breakdown and all that good stuff. Tuesdays, I'm very excited to say for the third consecutive season, my friend Alex McGrath will join me once again. Very excited to get Alex back on the airwaves and truly appreciate him doing that. So he will join us on Tuesdays. Wednesdays, we will talk about everything from Shane Beamer's press conference on Tuesday, as well as gambling. Gambling's back. We're talking SEC gambling picks. We're talking best bet for South Carolina's game that weekend. Also, we've got a special new edition that I will tell you guys about on the Wednesday show in regards to our gambling content. Thursday will be just like you guys have known in the past. Thursday shows will be a full game preview, key matchups, keys to the game, a full breakdown of the team. South Carolina's playing all that good stuff. And then Fridays, I will lock in my official prediction for the game that weekend. So again, we are rocking, we are rolling content, bleeding out the eyeballs. But early thoughts on Eastern Illinois, because EIU did play over the weekend, believe it or not, if you did not know, EIU's season opener was Saturday at 6 o'clock against the Indiana State Sycamores. And I'll say this, and we'll move off of it, because again, we're going to break down EIU a lot this week, especially when we get later into this week, of course. And as we count down the days to kick off in the preseason, and I've dropped my preseason predictions and projections multiple times. Now, I'm sure you guys are very well versed in what I'm picking six and six. I am locked in with that prediction. And in the preseason, I have picked South Carolina to win this game 41 to seven. Right. You know, I, I wanted to go a little conservative because it is the first game of the Shane Beamer era. And it's the first game for everybody. You're depending on a lot of new faces. And so I, I think it's smart to keep predictions a little conservative, right? You, you know, I, I'm not going to go out there and be outlandish, or at least I wasn't, and say, you know, South Carolina's going to win this game 78-3, to three, right? Like, nothing crazy. So I'm like, hey, 41-7, to seven, it's a blowout. A lot of guys will play, whatever. I'll tell you guys this. After watching EIU on Saturday, without spoiling my prediction for the weekend, I said this before when we did the opponent preview series earlier this summer. But after watching them on Saturday, this is truly a name-your-score type of game for the Gamecocks. I mean, this is truly an empty-the-bench type of game for the Gamecocks. Again, for those of you who did not get to watch, it was a straight-up bull rush against the EIU offensive line the entire game. I mean, on the line of scrimmage, and again, this is without spoiling prediction, but I, I think you guys all know I'm going to pick the Gamecocks to win. South Carolina will out at minimum out athlete EIU all over the field at every single position. 
And I saw somebody on Twitter saying, oh, you know, why would you play a game like this? You know, you're making the point. Why would you play a game like this? Like, there's no point in playing this game. You don't learn anything. And, you know, you may not learn anything. You're not going to be able to draw conclusions from a game like this. But, guys, how good does it feel to go into the beginning of the Shane Beamer era and know you're going to start 1-0? You know you're going to have something to feel good about. Because after you watched EIU on Saturday, guys, again, I, I mean – Pick a number you want for rushing yards. Pick a number of sacks you want. Really pick a number of points. That's the type of night I think it's going to be at Williams-Brice Stadium. So, again, I don't know if any of you got to see that game. If you have any thoughts on that game, I'd love to hear them. If you got to see EIU, they lost to Indiana State, by the way, 26-21. to 21. But it should be – I'll just leave it at this because we're going to break this thing down and talk a lot more about EIU later this week. It should be a very – very, very, very fun night for the boys in Garnet and Black this upcoming Saturday. But again, folks, we are five days away from kickoff. Five days away from the beginning of the Shane Beamer era. And again, guys, thank you all so much because you guys have continued to support rock and roll with the content all throughout the preseason, right? We've been on this journey of the preseason, and now it's almost time for us to enjoy the fruit of our labors and get to Saturday, and get to the tailgate, and get to the game day show, and get inside Willie B. And I cannot wait to go through this 2021 football season with you all. All right, with that being said, guys, let's continue on with the show. We're going to wrap up our 2021 position unit preview series. And are we saving the best for last? Or maybe the most questionable position group on this Gamecocks football team. Of course, I'm talking South Carolina secondary heading in the 2021 football season. And guys, before we look at this year's group, let's look back because what an interesting year it was for South Carolina because you had talented bodies on this, on this group, right? You had talented bodies within this unit. J.C. Horn, Israel McQuamu, Cam Smith, Jamie Robinson, John Dixon, Shiloh Sanders, right? Tons of talent, you felt. We, there were many people that pointed to the secondary a season ago as the strength of the football team going into the 2021 football season. And when you look back at the numbers, it is truly mind-boggling and it is truly baffling at just how bad this secondary was a season ago with those players that I mentioned. South kind of gave up 256 yards per game through the air. Guys, that was 97th in all of college football. They also gave up 8.8 yards per passing attempt. That was 115th in college football. They gave up an average quarterback rating of 159. That was 118th in college football. They gave up a completion percentage of 66.6%. That was 115th in college football. One of the worst Pass defenses in all of college football with guys like J.C. Horn, the eighth overall pick, with a guy like Israel McQuamu, who is doing great things at the NFL level right now as a rookie. Guys like Jamie Robinson and John Dixon, who were highly regarded players. I mean, Jamie Robinson last year led you from your defensive backs and tackles, 74 total tackles, two tackles for loss, and a pick. You had a guy like Jalen Dickerson with 20 tackles and an interception, also a tackle and a half tackle for loss, one and a half tackles for loss. J.C. Horn, 16 tackles, one tackle for loss, and two picks. Cam Smith with two picks. McQuamu with two picks. But as a whole, 
The secondary, you could argue, maybe was Will Muschamp's undoing. The fact he could never figure that position out, and especially that group of safeties, which is the group that he coached. The group he coached. Right? So, I don't think anybody would argue against the fact that last year's group of defensive backs was much more talented, top to bottom, than this year's group. However, will there be a massive improvement even with the exodus of all those guys I just mentioned? And, of course, we all know what happened last year. By the way, you got a lot of young guys' experience because of the opt-outs of J.C. Horn, Israel Mokwamu, and a couple of others as well, R.J. Roderick, a couple of others as well. So a very interesting group. One of the biggest question marks on this football team entering the 2021 football season, guys. Let's meet the secondary, the guys who will take the field in the back half of this Gamecocks defense. We'll start with redshirt junior Jalen Dickerson, redshirt sophomore Jamar Brown, redshirt sophomore Cam Smith, senior R.J. Roderick, redshirt senior Jalen Foster, redshirt freshman Joey Hunter, freshman Ladarian Craig, sophomore Dominic Hill, redshirt junior Tyrese Ross, Grad student Carlin Splatel, of course, the grad transfer from Assumption. Uh, redshirt sophomore Marcellus Dial coming from Georgia Military. Redshirt freshman O'Donnell Fortune. Redshirt freshman Landon Greer. Junior Isaiah Norris also coming from GNC. Redshirt junior Darius Rush. Redshirt sophomore David Spaulding. Freshman Cam Hardy. Redshirt sophomore BJ Gibson. Freshman Joseph Burns. And redshirt freshman King Dominion or yeah, Dominion. Ford. My bad if I'm mispronouncing that name. Um, but again, that's 20 bodies right there. A lot of guys in your secondary. Who's going to step up? Who's going to answer the questions? All right, let's talk most to prove, best overall. Season will be successful if, and I'll give my overall grade, the Gamecocks defensive backs heading in this 2021 football season. Now, when you talk most to prove, this unit, now I, I'm going to be drawing a lot of parallels between this unit and the Gamecocks wide receivers because both are skill players on the outside and both position groups have a massive amount of question marks. I mean, there's just no other way to spin it. You can have the most garnet-colored glasses on. There's nobody that would debate you and say, oh, that's a strength for South Carolina. No, there are question marks all over the place. So there are a lot of guys you could put here in this most-approved category. But the player that I'm picking, as I mentioned earlier, you know, for whatever reason, you want to call it player development, you want to call it lack of evaluation and recruiting, you want to call it bad coaching. The safety position has been a sore spot for South Carolina. There's just no other way to put it. The Gamecock safety play has been abysmal the last five, six, seven years in this program's history. It has been ugly to watch in the back end of the defense. And a guy that has shown flashes throughout his career, he's been inconsistent. He has been on the butt end of some jokes from Gamecock fans because of his play at times. Let's call it for what it is. But someone that shined as a true freshman, he's not afraid of contact. He returned to South Carolina when I really don't think he had to. And someone that you really need to step up as a leader in the back end of the defense, guys. Again, he's a veteran player. He's a senior. And, of course, I'm talking about the senior from Somerville, South Carolina, Cane Bay High School, number 10, R.J. Roderick. 
Again, R.J. Roger guy. I think there's a lot of talent there. I think we've seen him develop in some ways, but he simply has not been good enough. He has not been consistent enough for South Carolina. And you're going to have two brand-new safeties back there. R.J. Roderick, Jalen Dickerson, Tyrese Ross, maybe Jamar Brown mixes in. I mean, it's a brand-new set of guys. Guys, experience is not on your side when it comes to the DBs. Your leading returning defensive back, experience-wise, has four career starts. Four. So experience is not on your side, right? And I know we love to heckle and give Israel McQuamu crap, but somebody's going to have to fill in that void that he left in the back of the defense. Can R.J. Roderick step up and be that guy that sort of holds this thing together? Because there's no secret. This is a secondary that's going to have to figure it out early in this season and as we go throughout this football season. This is the weak point on this Gamecocks defense. There's no way to sugarcoat it. So you're going to need a guy like R.J. Roderick to step up and lead a youngster who's immensely talented like Cam Smith, to step up and lead a guy like Marcellus Dial, who'll be taking his first snaps at the SEC level, to step up and lead a guy like Carlins Platel coming up from Division II assumption to the SEC level. We've seen flashes from R.J. Roderick. We've seen flashes of him being a good player. We have. And I don't think R.J. has to go out there and be all world. He doesn't have to be Coe Simpson. But he's just at least got to be a serviceable option back there because what has killed South Carolina the last four, five, six, seven years has been the just breakdowns in coverage, the breakdowns at the safety position. I tell you, I mean, I'm not going to list guys by name specifically, but, man, I've seen a lot of the back of Carolina safety's jerseys over the last couple of years, and I'm really sick and tired of seeing it. So can R.J. Roderick, can he come into his own? I, I think he has the physicality down pat. I think he has it. And I think maybe at sometimes he was misused, which is why we have seen such inconsistent play for him. But the safeties as a whole, they've got to get better. Can R.J. Roderick have his best season in Garnet and Black and be that, that veteran presence in the back end of the Gamecocks defense, if you will? Guys, let's move into best overall. The best overall player from the Gamecocks defensive backs heading into 2021 football season. And this is a guy, you know, I've been fortunate, guys, through, you know, what I do with the Spurs Up show and getting to create relationships and talk with people and, 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 and meet really cool people and, and get unique perspectives on things. You know, there's some people that like to talk shit and they think I just don't know anybody and, and they, they don't think they think I'm just making it up. They're like, I, I, you know, I, I talk to people that are around Gamecock football and heck, some of that are on the field with Gamecock football. But I can tell you after last season, um, it was really cool. I was able to actually chat with a current player on the team, by the way, a current player in the secondary was able to chat with him um, in a setting that was, you know, not a conversation that was recorded, of course, or, or posted publicly or anything like that. But we were talking about the season. We were talking about guys on the roster. And again, this was after this was like late December, season's over, whatever. And this particular player brought up this guy and told me, he said, Chris, I'm telling you, he is a better cornerback than J.C. Horn and Israel McCormick were. I'm telling you right now. And I said, wow. I said, wow. And so coming into this season, going through spring, summer, and now coming to the season, I think there's no secret who the top defensive back is among this group. And he was a guy 
who was extremely highly recruited, right? I mean, talent, he has talent, tons of talent. And at times last year, showed flashes of that. Of course, he was a youngster last year. He went through his growing pains. There's no question. But a guy that I think, as long as he's healthy, that's the biggest thing, got to get him back on the field, get healthy. But as long as he's healthy, this guy has as much upside as any player on the Gamecocks roster, in my mind, and that is the defensive back, Cam Smith. Again, hearing what I've heard about Cam Smith, his footwork, his speed, his agility, his quickness, his ball skills, and again, this was a highly regarded prospect on the recruiting trail. I think Cam Smith can be the next great defensive back to come through South Carolina. When you, when you, when you are getting that type of praise from someone who is your peer, I mean, that, that's not something he had to say. That's not something this current player had to go out of his way and tell me and tell us, the people I was with. But I think we've, we've kind of gotten a, a glimpse of that through the spring, summer, and the fall, that this is going to be a secondary that Cam Smith, Cam Smith really needs to come into his own as your number one defensive back, as your number one cornerback. You know, again, you lose JC, you lose Izzy. Who's going to step up? Who's going to be that next guy? So I look to a guy like Cam Smith. He has all the skill set. He has it all. And I think being, by the way, coached by Torian Gray, let's not leave that out. I think that's going to benefit him tremendously. Now, when will Cam Smith return? We know he's been nursing that, that ankle, that foot, whatever, if you will. When will he return to the field? Will it be week one? Will it be week two? Will it not be until week three at Georgia? But overall, I think once he returns, Cam Smith is the best defensive back on this roster. For that reason, I list him as the best overall Gamecocks defensive back heading in this 2021 football season. Now, guys, let's talk season will be successful if. Again, a very intriguing group. 256 yards per game allowed last year in passing. And it's going to be very hard to beat anyone when you're allowing that many passing yards. It's going to be very hard, right? And like I said, this is a unit a lot like the wide receivers. A lot of guys, you got to find some dudes, right? But there's also in the secondary going to be a lot of new faces. I mean, a lot of new faces. And a lot of guys that maybe they're not new, but they're new to playing a big role. They're new to starting. They're new to contributing, right? And so for me, when I look at this group, you know, what would spell, let me say this, what would spell a successful season for the secondary? Because I'll tell you this, and when talking about the defense as a whole, and I'll say this about the secondary, how could they be any worse than they were a season ago? Even if this is not a great unit, because I don't think it is, guys, and we're going to get an overall grade here in just a second. They simply can't be any worse than they were a season ago. They, they can't. They can't. 256 yards per game. I don't want to imagine they're going to be worse than that this season. But with the amount of newcomers you're depending on, and again, I said it last week, a lot from lower-level schools, D2, FCS, JUCO, a lot of your new guys are in this secondary. And I, I commend, by the way, the job that Shane Beamer and Torian Gray did in this preseason to plug as many holes as they could in this secondary through the transfer report. I think they did a phenomenal job. But with the amount of newcomers you're depending on, for me, for the Gamecocks defense, for the Gamecocks secondary, the season will be successful if your newcomers can emerge as immediate impact players. Now, what does that mean? How good are they? I'm not saying they're all conference guys. I'm not saying they're all Americans. But if guys like Marcellus Dial, David Spaulding, Tyrese Ross, 
Carlin's Platel, you know, Cam Smith getting his first opportunity to be cornerback number one. Darius Rush getting his first real opportunity to play. Jalen Dickerson getting his real first significant snaps. R.J. Roderick. Some of your newer guys, if those guys can at least just be consistent options for you, can they make an immediate positive impact, right? Can those guys come into their own and be what South Carolina needs them to be, which is consistent and consistently more good than you are bad, I guess, right? So again, a lot of newcomers you're depending on. The season will be successful. The Gamecocks defensive backs, in my opinion, if the newcomers can emerge as immediate impact players. Guys, let's close this thing out, move into our overall grade for the Gamecocks defensive backs heading in the 2021 football season. And I, you know, through these position at previews, I think I've irritated some of you because some of you want to look at this football team in a, you know, I don't want to say a glass half full kind of way because I look at this football team in a glass half full kind of way, I feel. But I think some of you, it, 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 it's, it's tough to hear. It's almost like somebody talking bad about your family, right? Like it's, it's tough to hear the truth about, you know, the players on the football team or the position units, if you will, and go quite and be quite as honest as I have been in some regards. And I told you guys this before we started the position at preview series, right? Like, hey, guys, I'm going to be very blunt and very honest, right? So you guys were loving the content all summer. You're loving it all during baseball season. Keep that same energy. And so I'm going to do the same thing here in closing. And like I said, are we saving the best for last or maybe the position unit with the most questions? Like I told you guys, I really compare the secondary. I draw parallels, many parallels to the Gamecocks wide receivers. In the fact of there's a lot of bodies in there. There's a lot of guys to choose from, right? You're in a 4-2-5 scheme now. you got a brand-new coaching staff. you got Torian Gray, right? And that was one of the most baffling things from the previous regime, that the secondary, just the safety position. You know, you had some gr- really good individual players. I mean, J.C. Horn, his name stands out. Israel McQuamu did some nice things. You know, you had guys like Rashad Fenton. You had, uh, you know, some others come through. but for the most part, it wasn't a dominant group, I would say, by any means. And like I've said before, and I'll say again, the odds that the Gamecocks defense is worse than they were a season ago is is very slim just because of sheerly how bad they were in 2020. 36 points per game, 452 yards per game. 256 yards per game through the air, guys. I mean, you look at all these statistics, South Carolina ranks 100 or worse in damn near every single one of them. Every single one of them. I mean, they were the, this was one of the worst defenses in all of college football. And the secondary is the position unit that was probably ravaged the most from JC and Izzy leaving for the draft to Jamie Robinson, John Dixon, Shiloh Sanders, all hitting the transfer portal. So now, you're depending on a group of guys that there's talent in this room. Again, you're not a South Gun if you don't have talent, right? There's talent in the room. But it's extremely, extremely unproven. And depth is a major, major, major issue 
It's a major issue, right? You factor that in. Again, from the national perspective, many folks look and say, oh, they're going to be so much worse on defense. They lost this guy. They lost that guy. They lost that guy. But again, you sit there and you're like, how could they be any worse? They, they can't. Statistically, I don't think they could be worse in the passing game, defending the pass, I should say. I don't think they could be any worse. But make no mistake, the same thing I said about the wide receivers is the same exact thing I will say about the defensive backs, guys. This position group, this unit, it is a deficiency until proven otherwise. There's no secret that on the defense this year, you're going to have to depend on your pass rush. And in games where South Carolina cannot or has trouble generating a pass rush, again, I think there's talent here. I think Cam Smith can be a nice player. We've heard nice things about Marcellus Dial. I think R.J. Roderick has potential. I think Jalen Dickerson has potential. But as a whole, the secondary scares me. Flat out, the secondary scares me. The amount, you know, we talked about before, Shane Beamer said it, I've said it, the amount of new faces you're depending on that come from lower-level schools, the amount of guys you're depending on that have no experience playing, the amount of guys you're depending on that have played and really haven't played all that great, it's scary. It's scary. And until we're proven otherwise, I think this secondary, this might be the weakest position group on this football team. I mean, truly. It's between this group and the receivers, which is which is truly mind-boggling because those are two position groups that, no, South Carolina football historically has not been great. There's no secret there. But historically, we've had really, really good wide receivers, and we've had really, really good defensive backs. And so to think both of those position groups are a deficiency is just a testament to everything that South Carolina football has been through over the last five years. But again, there are players I like individually in this group. They're going to have to prove to me they can work together and they're going to have to take that next step. Torian Gray has his hands full again. Can Tyrese Ross out of the transfer portal, can he step up? I will tell you this, the loss of Karan Prunty. I know I didn't mention that, but the loss of Karan Prunty, I know fans love to say, well, he didn't even play. Like, you know, what, what, it's not a loss. We don't know. It hurt. There's no other way to put it. It hurt. We were, you were talking about a guy that was actually – had done it at this level, um, Big 12, you know, freshman All-American, the type of season he had at Kansas, and, you know, the Prunty situation happens. That was a blow for this group. You got talent in this room, but you got nobody who's proven and nobody who's done it at this level, and you also have a severe lack of depth. Guys, again, I will tell you this. I think this is a group that will struggle. I, I think there's no other way to put it. Um, and the only way to fix this group, truly, is to go recruit. Bottom line, go recruit guys like Keenan Nelson Jr. Go recruit guys. Go find guys. Go find big-time ball players. Because right now in the secondary, that's what you're lacking. <laughs> you're lacking big-time ball players. As much as I hate to say it, and it's no disrespect to those guys currently on the roster, but you're lacking big-time ball players. And again, you're going to see an improvement in the statistics. But make no mistake, this is a weakness on the Gamecocks football team and a weakness on this defense, and you're going to have to depend on that defensive line to help these guys out. For that reason, I'm giving the Gamecocks defensive backs a D-, minus, the exact same grade I gave the wide receivers. I'm giving the defensive backs a D-. minus. Like I said, I'm not going to give an F because an F would say there's no talent. There's no potential. There's not even a chance of somebody stepping up and having a good season. That's not true. 
I think there is talent in this room. I think there is potential. But, guys, when you're just as young and inexperienced as these guys are, you're, you're asking a lot. You're asking a lot of this group of dudes to be a strength for you, if you will. Again, you got some talented players. There's no question. But you're also depending on a lot of guys that have never taken a snap at this level. You're depending on a lot of guys that have never played a meaningful snap in their three or four years' careers in Garnet and Black. And all of a sudden, they're going to turn to big-time ball players. I hope so, but hope isn't a strategy. And right now, hope is kind of all you have with this group. So, again, D-minus for the Gamecocks defensive backs heading into the 2021 football season. Guys, with that being said, that's going to wrap up the 2021 Position Unit Preview Series as a whole. Thank you all so much for rocking and rolling, tuning with all that, guys. I'd love to hear your feedback. Any of the grades I've given out, especially the one today on the secondary, what are your thoughts? How do you think the Gamecocks secondary is going to fit or fare in this 2021 football season? What grade would you give them going into this season. All right, guys, let's move into news and notes, and we'll get into your listener questions. Um, something that happened late last week, wide receiver Randricus Davis leaving the Gamecocks football team. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. It's unfortunate for Randricus, you know, a guy that, uh, you know, has most certainly gone through his fair share of trials and tribulations and dealing with injury and all that stuff. So, again, um, Shane Beamer announcing late last week he was taking time to, you know, tend to his health, tend to his mental health, I'd assume, and, uh, you know, Wishing the best, obviously, man. Like I said, when you go through, you know, as many injuries as Randricus Davis had been through and, and just the, the stuff he had to deal with and all that, you know, you wish him all the best. And, uh, you know, a guy that had been at South Carolina for a while and it's unfortunate didn't pan out. But uh, like I said, you wish him nothing of the best. So, again, Randricus Davis, the Gamecocks are down a wide receiver going into the 2021 football season. Also, guys, uh, really quickly, I do want to mention it. Bannergate 2021 has officially come to an end the Gamecocks replacing the banner on Williams Bryce Stadium I'll just say this because I don't want to spend more than like 30 seconds talking about it the new banner looks a thousand times better anybody that thinks the old banner looked better you're absolutely crazy I saw it in person it looks so 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 much better again why didn't they just do a black banner I have no idea but the banner looks great the banner looks great and again I'm glad they did it. I'm glad they changed it um yeah and we'll just leave it at that so again Bannergate 2021 officially comes to an end Sad day. <laughs> All right, let's get into your listener questions and we'll move into our interview, guys. Uh, Joshua C. Morton, of your definite losses, quote-unquote, which team could South Carolina pull a miracle upset on? If you don't know what Joshua C. Morton's talking about, guys, I released my wins, toss-ups, and losses, or I re-released them on social media over the weekend. Uh, my three definite losses are Clemson, Georgia, and Texas A&M. And so which team could South Carolina pull a miracle upset on? I, I think you have to say Georgia, right? Because that's who South Carolina at least has beaten most recently. I mean, the games against A&M and blowouts and against Clemson have been blowouts. So there's nothing that tells me that the Gamecocks are, are going to be able to beat either one of those. And I don't think they're going to beat Georgia either. But if you got to pick one, I mean, you got to say the dogs. Weird things have happened in that South Carolina-Georgia rivalry. And, uh, you know, maybe South Carolina could do the unthinkable as a 24, probably 24 and a half winner dog and beat the dogs, stun them in Athens uh, yet again. So I'll say Georgia. Uh, Krusty Andy, how many seasons to rebuild the secondary to what we had last year or better? And it's funny you say to last year because, again, that secondary last year statistically was terrible. I mean, they were off. I mean, you know, that, that, that's why I never understood those guys flexing and celebrating. It's like you're part of a terrible unit. Like, look at the statistics, right? You were terrible a year. You were one of the worst in the country. 
Stats don't lie. Men lie, women lie, but stats don't lie, my friend. And you were on one of the worst secondaries in all of college football. So to get back to an above-average secondary, though, Krusty, how many seasons? I think it's going to take two or three. I, I think you're going to have to get some big-time guys in here, man. And that's, like I said, guys, and I, I'm not trying to, like, kick the guys while they're down or be Debbie Downer or be doom and gloom. It's just the reality of the room, though. When you lose guys to the draft and you have guys transfer out, I mean, you know, Jamie Robinson, John Dixon, guys, those were starters. Those are guys that would have started in this group, no questions asked. So, um, you know, I think it takes two or three seasons to get the type of athletes you need to compete at a high level again in the secondary. Uh, last question, B Lamb underscore 14, what player do you think will step up and be able to support Cam Smith? I'll tell you, Marcellus Dial's been getting a lot of love this preseason. I think coming from junior college, I think he could be a big-time player for you. I do like Jalen Dickerson in the back end. I think he's a guy that has some potential, really hasn't gotten a chance to this point in his career as long as he can stay healthy. I think R.J. Roderick, I really do, is a veteran guy. I think he could step up for you. I think Darius Rush has had a really good fall camp. Could he possibly emerge? I would say Marcellus Dial, though. Marcellus Dial, probably Tyrese Ross, another guy at the safety position. But Marcellus Dial seems to be the guy that everybody's talking about. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say Marcellus Dial, I think, most likely is going to be the guy that you depend on to step up and, and help opposite of, uh, of Cam Smith. So, again, guys, appreciate the questions. Thank you all so much for the engagement, for, um, you know, leaving your questions, your comments, and everything else. All right, guys, we have a fantastic conversation, a great interview, one of the best in the business to do it. Guys, this is somebody who's been in the media game since the 80s. Man, he's been doing it forever, and he's one of the best. He's absolutely a treat, a pleasure. If you ever watched those Jefferson Pilot sports games or those Raycom games or, heck, any game on ESPN, CBS, he's still calling games right now for Fox Sports. I think he'll actually be on the play-by-play this weekend for uh, – I think it's a Kansas game or some other game or whatever. But truly, truly a guy who is an OG in the media game, Tim Brando, joined me for a great conversation. More so to talk about college football as a whole. We did. He did share some cool stories with me in regards to South Carolina football and his run-ins with Lou Holtz and Steve Spurrier. And, uh, you know, his first ever game, he said, guys, with ESPN was actually calling South Carolina Miami in the 80s when Todd Ellis was the quarterback. So we talked about South Carolina. We talked about college football. We talked about expansion. We talked about the playoff. All that good stuff, guys. So sit back, relax, enjoy. It's all brought to you by our friends over at Manscaped. Guys, autumn's in the air. The pumpkins are in the patch. Not quite yet, right? It's hard to say that when it's like 100 degrees in Columbia. But hey, the pumpkins are in the patch, damn it. And our friends at Manscaped are here to make sure you don't carve your pants pumpkins when you're grooming if you know what i'm saying make sure you're keeping things fresh this fall with the leaders in male grooming their brand new fourth generation performance package boys get ready for a cuffing season like none other ready to take the leap into fall with manscaped join the two million men worldwide using manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20 percent off and free shipping with the code tsus20 again guys we've all been there right it, you're trimming you're manscaping you cut yourself nick yourself you're bleeding it's burning it hurts it's no bueno don't do that this fall, man. Not this fall. Leave that in 2020. It's time to bundle up with the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, their Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Provider Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and 
a travel bag to hold your goodies. Guys, first off, the new Performance Package 4.0. It includes the new Lawnmower 4.0. If you're looking to cozy up this fall, this trimmer is essential. Their fourth-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin, advanced skin-safe technology. Say that five times fast. It also gives you the ability to turn the 4,000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave, plus it's waterproof. The Performance Package 4.0 also includes the Weed Whacker to chop your worst weeds up top in your nose and your ear. This nose and ear hair trimmer uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system to provide proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. Maybe take a breath during the ad redress. <laughs> Seal the deal with Manscaped's liquid formulations, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant. Everyone knows pumpkin spice lattes and ball deodorant go hand in hand. Then after trimming the pumpkin patch and whacking the leaves, give your balls a boost and use the Crop Reviver Manscaped, guys. They even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and Shed Travel Bag. Get comfy on the home and on the go this season. Guys, Call twenty or get 20% off in free shipping with the code TSUS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off in free shipping with the promo code TSUS20 at manscaped.com. Make sure your balls are a priority this fall. Choose Manscaped. Your balls will thank you later. Guys, again, appreciate you all tuning in. Enjoy this conversation with Tim Brando. All right, guys, joining us today on the Spurs Up show, very excited. Someone who is a veteran in the media game and someone I've watched since I was a kid watching college football. He's covered NCAA football, basketball, the NBA for places such as Raycom Sports, ESPN, Sirius XM. He's also served as, as a studio host for games, a play-by-play announcer, halftime host as well. He's currently he's also worked in radio as well. He's currently a national sports commentator for Fox Sports, locking in on college football, college basketball. Guys, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Again, a legend in his own right. Tim Brando joins the show. Tim, appreciate you taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you on. And like I was saying, you also just showed me some South Ghana helmets that you have <laughs> in your place there, man. Incredible stuff. Lou Holtz, Steve Spurrier signatures. But again, Tim, appreciate you doing this, man. It's a pleasure to have you on. Truly an honor to be chatting with you today. Well, trust me, Chris, it's good to be with you. And yeah, uh, over the years, and if you were a guy that watched uh, my old radio show when it was televised on CBS Sports Network, you know, we did a little segment called Who's in the helmet? Helmet, helmet, and uh, we would we would just beg coaches to send in stuff, and uh, and, and and most of them did. Uh, and I've got a when the show ended, and we did it at a uh, studio that was probably about the size of you know the one Dan Patrick uses up in Connecticut, mm-hmm. which was about fifteen minutes away from my house. So a sound stage. In fact, some some music Kenny Wayne Shepherd used to the blues guitarist used to record there anyway i had to move the snow when the show ended i had to bring i gave some of the guys that were on my crew i gave them you know the helmets that of the teams that they loved mm. you know but but the majority of them came to my house my house and i've got literally so many of them now that on the stairwell going up to the study where i'm talking to you now we have a helmet on every step of the stairwell going wow. up and then in the office, I'm literally walking over. You saw me picking them up. Yeah. I mean, I literally had to look through and pick up some. To, I mean, there are too many of them. Okay. Yeah. So, but um, you may have forgotten this because you're so young, but Lou Holtz and I were together. Uh, 
CBS in 1998 when I began doing the college football today. It was with Lou Holtz and Craig James. Craig had come over from ESPN, and I had worked with Craig there in the twilight of my days there in the early 90s. But Lou left to take the South Carolina job, and we did we actually did some NFL games together, Craig, Lou, and I. And I could tell you all kinds of stories about the decision-making process that went on between <laughs> he and Mike McGee, the AD at uh, South Carolina at that time. But anyway, Lou sent me a helmet, and it says, to be the best, you have to be the very best to wear this helmet, and Tim Brando is the best. Okay, and you can tell if you look really closely, yeah. this baby got knocked around a little bit. I mean, oh, it was yeah. legit. That, that was worn by a linebacker. You know, Swearingen could have worn that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then uh, and then Steve, Steve, of course, uh, two TM, super friend, go Cox. You know, Steve Spurrier took care of me. We're longtime friends, and he even sent me another one with uh, the Gators with Danny Werfel. So, yeah, I, I may be the only guy you know with two official South Carolina Gamecock helmets signed by Holtz and Spurrier. Right. Indeed. I've, I've got to believe that you don't know anybody else. Right. I, I, and, and I certainly. Uh, not I, media I, anyway. Yeah. Not, not media for sure. Not media. And I'll be honest with you. I'm a little bit, it was unexpected. Again, I, I know you obviously your media career, I'm not like totally shocked, but yeah, that's impressive. That's very impressive. And like I said, the, but the fact that the Holtz one is like a game worn. I mean, there's battle oh, yeah. scars on that baby. Like yeah. you said, I mean, it yeah. looks really good, but uh, Tim, I'm curious, man, again, I, I want to focus on the Gamecocks, of course, in college football, as we sit now less than 10 days away from kickoff, at least when this will be dropping, but you hail from Shreveport, Louisiana. You started your career in 1976. You were a disc jockey at a radio station in Shreveport. And again, that's where the media journey sort of began for you. You did telecast for LSU. And I'm just always really curious, you know, when you talk to people that have been in media as long as yourself and because it is a grind. I mean, it's a journey to, and I know it's different now because people, as we were talking, you know, off air, our good friend, Jake Crane of the J boy show and kind of what I'm doing with the Spurs up show, you're kind of able to create your own niche and create your own path. You don't have to, and I joke with people, you don't have to go out to Mississippi and cover middle school volleyball for 10 years before you get your shot or whatever. All due respect. Right. Whatever, right. but I, I would just love to hear again, where did that initial love for sports media come for you, for sports in general, and just what was that overall grind like? Because, again, I, it's one thing I'm sure, you know, you just kind of put your head down, you follow your passion, and you look up one day, and you're working for ESPN, you're working mm-hmm. for Raycom, for Fox Sports, but what was that journey in media like for you? And just go back to your beginnings, if you will. Well, it was something that I wanted from the time I can remember. I, I don't, I, you know, I can remember back to when I was four or five years old, my My father was in the television business, helped put a couple of television stations on the air. Prior to that, he had done radio and newspapers. And um, but he helped put the first two television stations on the air in my hometown. And he was a crooner. He had his own band that toured SAC air bases. So uh, he was great in front of the camera as well as behind the camera where you had to really produce, direct, write uh, commercials and and all the things that go with producing your own shows and local TV in the late 50s and early 60s. So extraordinarily talented man. Uh, and, and he introduced me to uh, the public lifestyle of someone that's going to be in that profession. And being comfortable in front of people was something that was never an issue for me because he made it so. He, he put me out there in front of people as a kid. You know, um, we were sort of uh, in Shreveport. Uh, our family was a little bit like uh, you know, the Osmonds, uh, I, I could sing, I could dance a little bit. My, my sister, my older sister did that as well. She pantomimed too. 
we were part of the act. And, uh, but at the same time, I was, a, you know, I was allowed to live as most kids in Shreveport, Louisiana would like a normal kid and play in the front yard, in the backyard and, and uh, go across uh, the street to the church lot where we play, you know, uh, baseball games late in the afternoon uh, or maybe basketball games in somebody's backyard. You know, we, we did all of that in those days in the sixties, but growing up in that period, uh, the neighborhood period, uh, it was, it was fun. And, but, but watching television was a very big deal. You know, T just having a television was like a, a huge deal in 1963 or four when I was six, seven years old. And, I was just drawn to live sporting events, the guys that were doing the big games. And uh, Kurt Gowdy, who turned out to be one of my mentors, was the guy that I really wanted to be like. He did the American Sportsman. He was the lead guy on NBC's Game of the Week, the Final Four, countless numbers of Super Bowls. You know, as much as I loved my dad and admired my dad and had him as a, a, a real mentor on a daily basis, uh, he knew that I wanted to be the guys doing the games. He, he understood my love of sports and uh, it was a connection to being a regular kid. There was nothing regular about getting on the a bandstand at a, uh, at an airman's club on a air base, singing uh, me and my shadow with my father in a tuxedo and then playing wipeout on the drums. You know, that, right. that was, that was abnormal. I wanted to be more normal in the sense that I was involved in sports and, uh, that's how it all got started. And then by the time I was 14 years old, uh, my dad had an opportunity to uh, get me uh, on the air with him calling high school football games. On September the 10th, uh, 1971, I did my first high school football game with my father. That was 50 years ago, this September the 10th. Now I'm 65. So I was just about to turn 15. I wasn't 15 yet. I was 14 years old, 14 years and 10 months old when I did my first high school football game. And the rest is really history. Mm. Uh, I, I, I did it my sophomore year, my junior year, senior year of high school. I quit playing high school football, uh, actually in middle school, junior high in the eighth grade, because I had the opportunity as a ninth grader to do games on the radio. I wanted to be a sportscaster. Now I continued to play baseball and basketball and I was pretty good at baseball. And, uh, and, and I enjoyed playing it, 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 it. I have an understanding of what players go through because I was one once. Wasn't great, but I was pretty good. And pitcher first baseman in baseball that had occasional power, could go deep, would never get a leg hit, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, that's where the love came from, Chris. And uh, But I did know that in those days, uh, you were going to have to go and pay your dues. Uh and your first job would likely be something other than sports. And being a disc jockey was really cool. You know, summer of your senior year in high school on K-Rock Radio, spinning the hits, uh, yeah, that made you a pretty cool guy your, your senior year of high school uh, going into college. And a lot of the guys in college wanted the jobs that I already had. So I was really lucky. The calendar was good to me. I was born into a family of broadcasting. Not many people know that. I mean, my dad wasn't Jack Buck, so I don't get the same kind of reaction from fans that Joe Buck does or that Kenny Albert would, you know, or Tom Brenneman did when he was when he was working on national TV because they were the sons of famous fathers. 
but in my hometown, I was the son mm. of a famous father. And uh, living in my hometown, I'm reminded of it often, and that's a great thing. I mean, it really is. So, um, but the 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 choices that you have to make, and the decisions that you make to get where you want to go, were much more a part of the construct of building a resume in our business in my day. Uh, you really did have to start at the bottom. Then you had to hope that you could, you know, con someone into allowing you to do a show. My first job in Baton Rouge in 1979, I was spinning records in the afternoon, but I convinced the station owner to allow me to do a sports talk show at night when the power went down on the AM side, please let me do an hour long radio show. And the, the owner was a great guy. And I remember him saying, well, can you sell it kid? And I was like, sure, I'll sell it. And I got some advertisers and he allowed me to do it. And that really got me into the LSU community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I became relevant to the coaches within that community. And by the time 1982 rolled around and Bob Broadhead, who was a, um, he was an athletic director that reminds me really a lot of Mike McGee when he was at South Carolina, Bob Broadhead was at Miami working for Joe Robbie with the Miami Dolphins. And he came in with this vision of having his own network, uh, bringing LSU sports into people's homes when cable was just being born. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the boxes were there to do pay-per-view mm-hmm. and there were cable channels available. And he had this idea, this novel idea to do something called Tiger Vision. And Tiger Vision in 1981, 82 was born. And that is at the height of Dale Brown's run at LSU. Again, the calendar was in my favor. And I'm getting to to do their games and get videotape out of my work while Charles Barkley is playing at LSU against, you know, some of the great teams that Dale Brown had. And I had the tape then. I had the the, the tape to send out for people to notice. And uh, three years later, January 5th, 1985, a 29-year-old Tim Brando did his first ESPN game with Dick Vitale, uh, Duke at Virginia. And uh, that got it all started for me. And I've been very fortunate ever since. Yeah, I was going to say, you got that big break with ESPN. And obviously, again, you work for places like ESPN, CBS Sports, of course, Fox Sports now. I'm curious, Tim, just switching gears a little bit, just media as a whole, how, how wild of a journey, how crazy has it been for you from your perspective? Because you mentioned you, you, you talked about, you know, radio and then when cable was just taking off. And again, yeah. I, you know, I remember – you know, sitting with my grandfather, you know, having to pay for pay-per-view to watch a South Carolina football game like it was South Carolina Troy or South Carolina Louisiana Lafayette. I mean, I remember listening to games on the radio. I mean, again, this was like 2003 or four, but still, like, there were some games you couldn't watch. And then we get into this day and age where it's like everything is streamed. You know, you you talked about Tiger Vision, which in my head I was thinking – this sounds a lot like Longhorn Network and like some of the mm-hmm. you know predetermined networks like the SEC, ACC, all that stuff. And I mean, we're seeing it change even more and more. Like, and then of yeah. course, social media just completely changes the game with you know athletics as a whole, but certainly college athletics and recruiting and the way everything happens. Like, how 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 crazy is it for you just seeing the evolution? Because again, it's changed the way it's literally changed the way media operates with, with all of these different changes to television, radio, yeah. social media, all of it. Yeah, it does. And I'll give an example, like, for, for instance, with you and um, and someone like Jay Crane, Jay Boy, as he's lovingly called, um, you, you're, you've got to be, you got to have uh, 
the, the sports acumen, but you also have to have a business acumen mm. about you to be successful uh, in the world of podcasting uh, or, or having your own YouTube channel or, or whatever it is you do. All right. You, you have to have, and I was, uh, I was just talking to Colin Coward the other day before he made the announcement about J boy on his, on his podcast network that he just opened up. And that's probably, I think what separates Colin from his generation. He's, he's 10 years younger than me, mm. Colin. And he, he actually did some play by play early in his career, but he didn't particularly like it. Uh, he didn't want to travel that much and he didn't mm. like the idea of staying in, you know, college towns and seedy hotels, which <laughs> I, I can understand that. I've, I've, I've certainly stayed in a number of them through the years. You have to take the good with the bad, so to mm. speak, but his understanding of how the business operates. Mm. Okay. And not just being a part of Fox's content, which he is paramount right. in Fox's right. content, but he also creates his own content. Hmm. that he owns that is licensed to him and you know i never thought about being a businessman in the television business hmm. uh and in fact the one time that i was sort of in that area was when my radio show began being televised on cbs sports network and it was a pain in the ass to me i did not <laughs> like it at all i didn't like being responsible for others well-being you know, the guys that were working for me, mm. you know, as as uh, as I was literally the the independent contractor that owned the rights to the show that CBS Sports Network would put out over the air. Um, and those guys worked for me, you know, just as I'm sure they do for Dan Patrick and they do mm. for Colin and whatever else. But I, I did not like that. I was not comfortable with that at all. But. I think the downside for guys of your generation is that you sort of pass by the different stages of development that our generation had to go through. Okay. And, and when I was coming up, you couldn't be on television if you hadn't first been on radio. <laughs> right. I mean, you really couldn't. <laughs> uh, and along the way in radio, you developed a skill set, you know, uh, voice projection yeah. and how to use your voice. Uh, are things that I think maybe your generation, unless they really work on it, mm. it, it kind of passes you by. You, you don't. So it's not exactly the same. Uh, you know, I, I would say I would say, Tim, to interject, if you listen to my podcast two years ago versus now or even I'd say yeah. a year ago, I, right. would, I would agree with you 110 percent. I tell people okay. you have to you have to find your voice. You really have right. to find. Yeah. So, you know, find out who you are, right. you know, to develop who you are, mm. you know, as opposed to doing a you know, an impression of someone that you like, right. you know, which happens a lot, you know, even, even Joe Buck has said that in the beginning, he was doing a poor man's Pat Summerall impression. <laughs> I mean, he's even said that you know, the, the best in the business have admitted from time to time that finding out who you are and being comfortable looking into that red light uh, and talking into that microphone is not easily accomplished. It takes a while. Um, and, and that development from, stage to stage on a career path similar to the one I took or any other guy my age might have taken was was um, regimented okay like you had to decide whether you were going to be a studio guy or a play-by-play -play guy you had to make a decision on that now I got a lot out of doing both and became I think um, 
more successful because I could do both well. Not everybody can, but I never really want, got into the business to be a studio host. I just happened to be good at it, and ESPN wanted to take advantage of that. And I actually fought with them over it quite a bit. And look what happened. I wound up at CBS doing what primarily? Hosting the SEC on CBS. But I also got a lot of play-by-play reps in in a lot of other sports. I mean, a lot of other sports. And um, and then in between leaving ESPN, I you didn't mention this, but I was a Turner for three years. I did the NBA playoffs. I did the Braves with Ernie Johnson's dad, Ernie Johnson Sr. Got a World Series ring out of it. Um, so I was able to do a lot of different things for a number of different networks and grow everywhere I went. But once you made that decision, you had to live with that decision. Mm-hmm. And in today's world, you know, the sky's the limit. Once you got a podcast, it does well. Now you go on and you, you got a gig doing this or that. Next thing you know, uh, you're doing a midday show on cable television. And lo and behold, somebody calls you and says, hey, would you like to host Jeopardy? Would you like to, to, to fill in for Jimmy Kimmel? You know, all these things can happen. Uh, but in my day, if you had made that choice, uh, for instance, this is a great example. Wheel of Fortune could have been my job in 1988. And, it, and Merv Griffin called my agent. I had nothing. I never dreamed of being a game show host <laughs> or I thought that I could be a game show host. Mm. But he liked my work on ESPN, thought I'd be a, a suitable replacement for Pat Sajak. Sajak was going to do a talk show on CBS. So he didn't give up the syndicated version of Wheel, but he had to give up the daytime version which was on nbc well they had to have a a cattle call of auditions to see who could work with vanna and i went out and did one uh, an audition and you can see it you can google me and find it it went really well i did it in one take without a problem and uh, when it was over i thought i had the job now it would have changed my life Hmm. if i had gotten that job okay chris if i had gotten that job uh, ESPN at the time was promoting it. They were happy that it was going on because they only had 25 million homes back then. And having one of their sports center hosts being the host of the number one game show in television would have been a real coup. So they were happy about it at the time. But if I had gotten that gig, who knows how much credibility I would have lost as a play-by-play guy and, and, and host of college sports. You know, I, I would have probably been lampooned by a number of critics because times were different then. Right, right. You know, well, I mean, who is this guy? He's talking to some woman from Indiana about, you know, book club on a Tuesday. What the hell is he doing a football game? You know what I mean? Mm. So times have changed now. People can do whatever they want, mm. however they want, if they're good at it. Okay. Your generation has that going for it. But it also, I think, is is unfortunate that all of the different levels of growth mm. that our generation went through, yours isn't. So that's the difference, really. Mm. Tim, I'd ask you this because I, I apologize, by the way, I didn't mention Turner because your resume is very long. So I might have it missed some of the forever. stops. So I, I apologize. <laughs> but uh, no, it's okay. I, I, it, could, it just takes a long right, time. Right. To I, I feel like there. your uh, your passion has always lied in college sports. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I know you've kind of gone back and forth, but I, I just, when I think of you, you know, I, I was joking off air, you know, who, who can forget those noon kickoffs, Raycom sports and Jay yeah. Jefferson pilot and, 
you know, we all, well, I was we all going, joke about I was, those I was, That's what I'm saying. I was working 24-7, 365 yeah. back then because you remember that, okay? Mm. You remember that I was doing SEC football in that early window on yeah. Jefferson Pilot. But at the same time, I was doing the Braves on TV, not TV, that's on Sports South, mm. which became Fox South, which was at that time was owned by Turner. Mm. And I was also doing the Atlanta Hawks on Sports South, which was owned by Turner at that time. And I, I started doing the NBA playoffs in 94, 95, 96 as well. So, you know, I was working around the calendar. I mean, I had no time off. And that was through, you know, my late 30s and early 40s. Mm. And so when I went to CBS in 1997-8, right in there, I began to really hone in on what I loved most, which was college football, college basketball. I've always loved golf. I always wanted to do more golf. And I guess it's just not in the cards for me to get to do that. Mm. But that's okay because I enjoy playing golf more than calling golf. (laughs) So, but I mean, those are my interests now. Mm. And at this stage of my career, Chris, that's what I want to sound like. I'm really enthusiastic about what I'm doing. Mm. And I know when it's college football or college hoops, you're going to get that. Mm. For sure. And Tim, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, you know, you were, you were referencing or uh, reminiscing on the South kind of Miami game you called when Todd Ellis was the starting quarterback. And again, you have the helmets Mm -hmm. from Lou Holtz and Steve Spurrier. So you're someone who's, watched the South kind of program in some form or fashion for quite a while. Again, what were your, I guess, coming up, what were your thoughts? And I guess, what's it been like to see the evolution of the program? Because, you know, obviously at some point soon, we're going to get into Shane Beamer and we're going to talk yeah. college football today, you yeah. know, with, again, with the season just around the corner. But I'd just love to hear your thoughts and overall, like the Gamecocks football program. I know it's a program that doesn't have the best tradition in the world, but certainly a, a passionate fan base, a fan base that fills out the stadium and ha- has had some great players th- throughout its well, uh, its history. I've said it many times, and I and I told Holtz this when he was up for the job, and Lou had trepidation about whether he should take the job. Hmm. I knew Mike McGee already uh, because Mike was somebody that um, had gone back in time uh, at USC, I'd known him at other places before he got to South Carolina. And Mike was actually kind of using me to get to Lou to talk. What do you think? And then Lou would say, well, what do you think about this guy? You know, Lou didn't have an agent. Okay. Right. A lot of coaches in his uh, age bracket didn't have agents back then. And uh, Lou was scared to go to South Carolina because he thought it might demean his incredible run at Notre Dame and Craig and I were both Craig James and I were both telling him never forget we were we had done the studio on a Saturday we're taking a limousine to Baltimore being driven to Baltimore to do a Ravens game on a Sunday uh and 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 he's literally doing a South Carolina she loves me she loves me not. She loves me. <laughs> he was literally felt like, and, and he was like, I just, you know, I, will I be, will I infringe on my legacy at Notre Dame if I go to South Carolina? We were like, Lou, Notre Dame is different. You know, what you did at Notre Dame will live forever. Your legacy is safe. But you could go to South Carolina and build something that will, will be the foundation for great success for a long time to come. 
you know, this is a fan base that's now in the SEC trying to get traction, and they're just going to be euphoric that they got Lou Holtz as their coach. And you can enjoy that, have one more great run. And living there will be a blast. You know, you can get your family involved. You know, Skip wanted to coach at that time, too, and he could have him on the staff, which he did. But I'll never forget talking to him. I said, listen, South Carolina's fan base is probably the least spoiled of any in the SEC because, you know, they were the Southern independent that, uh, you know, got out of the ACC and there was controversy over doing that. And then they languished for a while and had a little bit of a run with uh, Joe Morrison uh, in the mid eighties. And then that faded and, you know, nothing consistent. They had never built a consistent winner. Mm. You could do that. And you know what he did? You know, they don't get Steve Spurrier without Lou Holtz having been there before him. You know, they really don't. And I think that just speaks volumes about where they are. Now, look, uh, things have changed again for the Gamecocks because of the transformation of the Southeastern Conference through its continued growth. All right. And I think where Shane is now is somewhat in a similar position to to where Lou was when he took the job it's just it's it's advanced years and yeah you're you're this far removed from having gone through as an independent leaving the ACC in 1970 to where you are now but you know a proud tradition reborn I think is what Beamer's trying to accomplish because Lou set the table for for, I mean he people forget this but they beat Ohio State twice They beat an Ohio State team that won the national title the next season. It's bowl games, in bowl games in successive years. And that was a job, by the way, that Holtz always wanted, Mm. Ohio State. He had coached with Woody as an assistant. But he has those years. And then when he got out, and and it was time for him to get out after the fight with Clemson, uh, it was time for him to get out. Mm. He, He helped procure Spurrier. There's no question. That Spurrier doesn't go there if he hadn't already seen Lou do what Lou did. And Spurrier looked at South Carolina in the same vein as he did Duke when he took Duke to an unprecedented ACC title. And putting together those consecutive 11-win seasons, getting South Carolina almost to an SEC title. I mean, he really wanted a league championship, didn't get it, but he got them as close as you could possibly get. Uh, that's pretty remarkable too. So, you know, look, it's been a while now since South Carolina's had that kind of buzz, that kind of juice. And this version of Beamer ball, I think is what everybody there is so excited about. Uh, I knew Shane when he was a kid, you know, his dad, uh, before he coached at Virginia tech and the time that he spent uh, in the Southern conference, you know, the whole Furman thing, all that, um, and he was most recently in Oklahoma. I saw Shane uh, the week of uh, the, the heavy-duty announcement that he was coming to South Carolina. Spencer and I were in doing the Oklahoma-Baylor game, and, uh, you know, it was all swirling at that time that he was headed, you know, to South Carolina. I'm really happy for him. Mm-hmm. Shane's got uh, pedigree. He's got um, tremendous credibility, and uh, he, he knows – and gets how all this works because of the way his dad navigated his way up. But he's, 
as we like to say in the South, he's not too big for his britches because like his father, he's come up, you know, through the smaller schools and had to work his way to the point where he is today. So I think he's the perfect guy to guide the Gamecocks moving forward. It'll be hard this year because, um, you know, you've got a banged up quarterback right now and you're trying to figure out what's going to go on there. Schedule is brutal. And the, and the Eastern division now has, uh, 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 Georgia and a Florida ahead of you with a Kentucky that I think is undervalued. So it's going to be hard, but I still think he can succeed. And with, uh, the issues that are going on at Tennessee that are going to take a long, long time for them to climb their way out of, uh, I think South Carolina can, you know, move slowly, uh, and exponentially over time, uh, to, to great success again. Um, and their fan base deserves it. I've always said that the fan base in South Carolina is uh, is as understanding and uh, driven by reality more than fantasy uh, than than most. You know, most most fans in the SEC, if they're not winning national titles or on knocking on the door for one, they're pissed. Uh, that's not true at South Carolina. I think that they will uh, appreciate and enjoy you know, a bowl season, you know, when they've, cause they've been there before they've been through the hills and valleys of, of, uh, of trying to hold on to a program. And they understand that geographically um, from a recruiting standpoint, they've always been uh, in a difficult position. You know, they, they have to go out of state neighboring States and do well. And sometimes even recruit nationally to have success because there just aren't, the numbers of players in football that you'd find uh, in South Carolina that can match with other SEC schools. And Tim, you mentioned Steve Spurrier earlier. And I just wanted to point out, of course, you know, Shane Beamer on those staffs for a couple of years that helped Steve Spurrier build up to that 10 through 13 Absolutely. run. We saw he it. knows the lay of the land. Right. And I, I wanted to ask you about, again, you talked about before, you know, you obviously know Frank Beamer very well and Shane Beamer, you know, what, what do you feel is going to make Shane Beamer or could make Shane Beamer successful? Things you like about him. Again, a guy that's paid his dues, dues he's not too big for his britches. But, right. again, just knowing Shane Beamer, the Beamer family as a whole, I'm, I'm sure he's going to take a lot from what his dad did at Virginia Tech and the way he coached. I'm sure that's that's one of the guys right. certainly he's taken a ton away from. But, overall, like you said, this Beamer ball era starting in Columbia, What? Yeah. Why, why should Gamecock fans, would you say, feel optimistic about it? Well, I think he's got uh, a hands-on – uh, aspect to his approach to coaching that that Spurrier does you know Steve used to live vicariously through his quarterback on every play uh and we used to say that he, he was not your typical coach and if he if he there was never any misunderstanding that Steve was the ball coach and that he was going to call the ball plays um yet his dad was the ultimate CEO that loved to delegate and you know, being around greatness and, and Shane's been around greatness, mm. but there are different ways to be great. You know, there are, you can't do it the same way as the other coach. You have to do it your way, you know, and he's been around guys that know from, I mean, think about it, Lincoln Riley, Steve Spurrier, mm. uh, most recently. And then the time that he spent, you know, as an understudy to his father, pretty amazing so i think he he he's taking some from here from here from here and then you 
put that together and throw some originality on it. And, you know, he's a lot more outgoing than Frank. Frank was always a very kind and enjoyable guy, an accessible guy to be around. But Frank would never really light you up with an interview. You know, he would just kind of take it easy, you know, fancy gap, Virginia guy. And, you know, that it was just kind of down home. You know, Shane's a, a ball of fire. You know, he's a charismatic, uh, hands-on, but he'll walk up to you and put out his hand to say hello before you do. That's just who he is. And uh, being around type A's like Steve and Lincoln, who, who are that way both not only uh, personally but professionally, uh, I think that's going to rub off beautifully with him mm. and will we'll really wear well uh, for the long haul in, in Columbia. Mm. Now, Tim, before I get you out of here, I do want to talk about just the overall landscape of college football and the way it's changing in 2021 and beyond. And certainly what's taken over the SEC conversation is the whole Texas-Oklahoma thing, them joining the yeah. SEC. It's sounding like they may be in the SEC as soon as next season. Um, I know yeah. this is something, again, you've talked to our good friend J-Boy about and others because it's, it's something that everybody across college football wants to discuss. But your overall thoughts on SEC expansion, you know, I, I, I have some, some listeners of my show that they voice concerns that it's making college football less likable with the expansion of the SEC and the alliance. And I, I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where people don't look forward to college football anymore. Like it's really hard to fathom that and yeah. the NIL stuff coming up, which I'm a fan of obviously, but yeah. I, I, I do understand people's worry of the sport as a whole. What, what's your take on just the expansion we're seeing across college? Well, football? well, we're still in August, right? Mm. So it's still the talking season, silly season. And it's during that time when, guys that do what you do uh, or guys that are on the air daily doing radio uh, are dealing with a lot of stressed out fans that just <laughs> want to be pissed off. You know, they're, they're really pissed off about a lot of things and it makes it harder for them when they see what, what they've always conjured up in their heads in their, their fantasy world of Saturday athletics, you know, Saturday college football, for most fans of the sport, the average guy, regardless of what kind of job he has, uh, he, he has on the weekend this fantasy about it's college football. And this is the way it was when I was in school. And this is the way it's always been. And this is the rivalry. And we're, you know, it's the third Saturday of October and it's the border war, uh, the old cocktail party and the this and the that. And when they see some of these things changing, uh, it, it really bothers them. And uh, most of them actually are in my age bracket. Most of them are 60 years of age or older. You know, I'm 65 now. Uh, and, but I've always felt like college football was the slowest to change other than maybe major league baseball and that we needed to become more progressive and that we needed to uh, understand what's important for not just the short term, but the long term of the sport, you know, the BCS world in crisis countdown, get rid of that crap. College football playoff is a joke. It's less accessible than, than the BCS was. We need, you know, not only do we need an expanded playoff, but we need to unify college football's leadership and have a czar, someone that will take care of everything for every league, 
not to the extent that maybe Roger Goodell would for the NFL, but to have some semblance of stability and unity in what we're doing. And all of the things that are happening right now, Chris, are moving us in that direction. I mean, all the things that were bothering me. Mm. And I, it, you know, it's funny, I, I would talk about, you know, the fly and the ointment, you know, Boise State with the BCS and all that back in the day at CBS. And boy, that pissed off a lot of old SEC fans. Really, oh my God, ah, Boise State doesn't play anybody. I said, well, I'm just, I'm just telling you here, they are playing ball over there and those guys are pretty good. And, you know, they deserve a chance. They put on their jock, just like the guys at Tennessee, Alabama, and LSU, and Georgia. I'm just telling you. And, and uh, you know, they would cry that I was a socialist when it came to college football, uh, which obviously is the total opposite of my politics. Anyone that knows anything about my political lean uh, we should know better than that. Mm. But we need all these growing pains to take place. You know, what Greg Sankey did in reaching out. Now, and, and by the way, I do believe Texas and Oklahoma wanted to come to the SEC. Right. I don't know that their presidents called Greg Sankey rather than Greg Sankey called them. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's not my business. But we do live in a world of images and impressions. Mm. And the way this thing plays out everywhere else outside the South is that they flat out poached the Big 12, mm. all right? Good, bad, or indifferent, the SEC has now become the Darth Vader of college football. They are the black-headed villain that reached out and brought in two big names that would tilt, tilt the landscape in their direction uh, for the long term. And, and what you saw earlier this week with the commissioners of the ACC, Big Ten, and Pac-12 and their alliance announcement, it, it, it lacked specificity. Mm. It lacked uh, substantive news about when it starts, how they're going to do it. They admit readily they didn't sign a contract. Okay, so you can make a case, and I know some have. Well, this was sort of a, you know, all show, no, no dough deal. What, what are you guys really doing? Well, I, th I think they did a lot, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, they, they basically sent the salvo across the bow to SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. All three of us are going to vote together on everything, so get ready. SEC, you better get ready for every major decision that's going to be made in college football. Jim Phillips, Klyavkov of the Pac-12, and Frank Warren, uh, Kevin Warren, excuse me, the Big Ten Commissioner, they're going to vote together. So their three votes trumps your one vote. Mm -hmm. So you better understand that. The other thing they did was they said, you know what, we can grow monetarily without having to expand. And how we do that is by having greater content. How do you create greater content? By scheduling major games intersectionally between their conferences. Mm. And their television rights are gonna be coming up soon. The Big Tens is first, and then the Pac-12s. The ACC is stuck with a bad deal for 12 years that they inherited. So how they work it out, I don't know, but we'll see. But there's no question in my mind 
that a lot was achieved with that uh, announcement earlier this week. And bottom line is that moving forward, we're going to see this little tug of war take place as realignment continues. And now it's up to Bob Bowlesby of the Big 12 to find out how he's going to hold his eight remaining teams. And I think he got some good news uh, the other day when the decision was made by the Big Ten to say, we're really not, we don't need to expand. Mm. We can get more money with the same teams we have. You know, we got all these households. We got Penn State. We got Ohio State. We got Michigan. We don't need to add anybody. And I'm pretty sure that the Pac-12 is not going to add anyone either. And the Pac-12 gets saved by its association with the Big Ten and these games that they're going to have. And they really need, they really needed something. They were in peril financially. So this is going to help them. So I think the Big 12 needs to look to Boise State, to BYU, maybe even look over to uh, the American Conference again and see if they want to conjure up conversation pieces again with the likes of Memphis or Cincinnati and see what transpires there. But they're on the clock. Mm. But I do think they'll still be involved. I don't think you have to worry that these four super conferences are going to leave everybody else out. I really don't. Um, we can't have college football without the, the rust belt and the sun belt portions of the country involved. Mm. And uh, it's not in the best interest of the game. And I think all these guys know that you may be uh, anti certain leagues or anti commissioners of certain leagues, but I will tell you that every one of them, you know, and I know them all very well, with the exception of Klyavkov. I don't know him because he's been outside college football's realm. I know the other guys very well. They're all very bright, well-intentioned, and caring people about the sport. So I think they'll work it out. There's a healthy rivalry there, and I think that's also good for the sport. You know, and I don't, I, I don't know of anyone that should be more comfortable than the SEC with being the bad guy. I think Greg Sankey absolutely is dug in and loves being the, the, the so-called emperor of the new regime of college football. Mm. I think he like, and I like seeing that, but that's, that's leadership. Mm. Um, I got, I got a lot of negativity from people in other conferences when I defended uh, Sankey for getting Texas and Oklahoma. I, I thought it was a step in the right direction of leadership. He, he was just looking ahead. You got this NIL thing. What do we need? We need more money. Chris, they need more money. He ensured that his membership is going to get a lot more money. Hmm. No, I agree. I think Greg Sankey's actually done a great job. Hey, Tim, this has been a pleasure. Before I get you out of here, you mentioned college football playoff. And I, I'm somebody, again, that talks South Carolina 24-7, 365. So, unfortunately, I haven't got to talk a ton of playoff because we're not quite right. there yet. But, of course, with college football fans, the conversation comes up, you know, what is the right number? And, I, and I'll agree with you. I don't think – I think the move to four was a great move in theory, but I, I think we all agree. We look back now and say, man, maybe the old BCS system wasn't that bad. I mean, we're, we were getting well, to the same point well, let, me, anyway. let me give you a stat that yeah. maybe you haven't thought about real quick. Mm -hmm. All right. During the six years, six years of the BCS, 18 different teams – 18 different teams. Mm. Okay, play. With only two teams available. Right. In the seven years of the college football playoff, 11 teams mm. have been in the college football. 11. Yeah. Now, they basically, by getting rid of strength of schedule, getting rid of computers, they limited the playing field. Mm. 
Mm. Okay, that's what they did. And uh, with all due respect to my friends at ESPN, and I still have many of them there, the who's in yeah. uh, branding was a colossal mistake. You know, who's in? We know who the hell's in. I can tell you in July who's going to be in. Okay, <laughs> right. it's Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Oklahoma, uh, maybe LSU, and then uh, Ohio State. That's what yeah. we got. Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, and uh, I mean, so, so that leads to what's in, the, I know I know who's in every what's, year. What's the solution? The right number? I, we've heard eight tossed around, twelve, sixteen. Well, I, what, what what do you well, think? I, they're committed to twelve, and here's why they're committed to twelve. Uh, eight was the was the number I I had. I was shocked when they went to twelve, but I understood why they did when they when they came out with the research. And I do applaud those guys. I think the research was tremendous. They basically said, "We'll get so much more revenue if we have what more games, yeah. more content. You know, we're leaving a lot of money on the table here, and." If we go to eight, okay, fine. We might get one of the so-called Cinderella's out of the group of five. We might be able to get one of those in, yeah. But we're also going to have multiple teams out of the same leagues. If we go to 12, now we're bringing in, you know, really the rest, the whole country's going to be engaged. All right? The conference championship games in recent years, unless it was the Big Ten or the SEC, why watch? Yeah. You knew who was in. Well, now with 12 teams, all the conference games matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just the Pac-12, which hasn't mattered in a long time, not since Mariota was playing in 14. Mm-hmm. And I did that game. Has that game really mattered? But, hey, the Sunbelt Championship game might matter. You which, know, it's, the, which it's funny to hear you say this, Tim, because I mean, most Coastal people – Carolina, think about that. Yeah. Coastal Carolina – and as we used to call our friends down in Lafayette, uh, ooh la la. <laughs> <laughs> they got a great team, by the way. And I'm a, I've got their opener in Texas on September the fourth. But beautiful. All of the conference championship yeah. games matter, which I goes mean, against most people. Try, they try to mm-hmm. argue against it, saying, "Oh, well, the games aren't going to matter as much," which I think is no. crazy. I think it's crazy. It is crazy. It's yeah. totally bad. In what world are college football fans not going to care about? Like, I, I don't yeah. care if you let. 32 teams in people are going to care about Alabama Auburn like that game will right. never lose its luster Auburn, you know what I mean Auburn Alabama weekend the Iron right. Bowl weekend Chris <clears throat> for the last two years Spencer Tillman and I have done the Heartland Trophy game mm-hmm. in the Big Ten between Iowa and Wisconsin now that game's always been on opposite Auburn Alabama so you think to yourself well gosh that that, that, that game nobody's going to be yeah. watching that well <laughs> think again the Heartland Trophy game between Iowa and Wisconsin is always going to get a quality rating. It's going to have, you know, three and a half to four million people watching in the Big Ten area. Okay. But really, with the stakes in that game would probably be for, for, for what? For the right to get your butt kicked by Ohio State in the Big Ten title game. Hmm. I mean, that's what they're literally right. playing for. All right? right. But you take a game like that now, uh, I could project Iowa and Wisconsin every year to be top 15 Mm. every year. Now one team might be 16 or 17 one year and the other team eight or nine, or we could flip flop them or they could be stacked at like 12 and, and 15. All right. Imagine how many more people are engaged to watch a game of that caliber 
and, and it, I could use another example in another league very easily that because said team is ranked at or around number 12 mm -hmm. and the game is being played anytime in November, early November, mid November, whatever, that game takes on so much more importance because they're fighting to get in the top 12. So there is absolutely nothing but upside mm. for the regular season to go to 12 teams in the postseason. Nothing but upside. Do you think 12 is the solution or should it be more? No, 12 is 12 perfect. Uh, yeah, perfect. I, we don't. Yeah, I, I think anything more than that. And we allow the pinheads that start saying, well, we're turning it into the NFL. We, right. I don't want them to have a state. I don't right. want them to have any legitimacy at all. And I think if we get beyond 12, we give them credibility when they say, well, they're turning it into the NFL. I, there's a, that talk is already there. Mm. I want to extinguish it before it gets started any further. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Tim, by the way. I think 12 is the move. I, I was talking to a buddy about this a couple of weeks ago, and what he was saying is, you know, you're giving teams, for example, South Carolina, you're giving those fan bases even more reason to be invested early <laughs> yeah. in the season because right now yeah. in college football, you know, if the goal, you know, like you said, South Carolina's not a fan base that's spoiled or over-entitled that, hey, if we don't go to a national title, we're just going to be checked out. But there are a lot right. of fan bases that, you lose a game early and you're out of the talk for a conference right. title or national, and they're just done. So it gives yeah. more teams, more fan bases, reasons to be invested well, longer. And, and, into we, the and, and what the committee found out, the, the guys that were involved in this, Bowlesby, uh, Craig Thompson with the Mountain West, um, and Sankey with the SEC, what they found in their research was that by having 12 teams and going back to the campuses, the opening round you know five plays 12 and 12 comes to five 11 comes to six 10 comes to uh, eight uh nine and seven get together I mean, that, seeing that okay and the elimination process from that team that wins and moves on okay fans in our country follow sports that way in every other sport in every other sport you win this one you advance to this. Mm. And then, oh, and oh, by the way, having the top four teams with a bye, that only gives the teams at or near the top even more incentive to stay there, you know, to make sure that they don't have to play. And uh, when Notre Dame acquiesced to this, Jack Swarbrick, the, uh, the athletic director, said, you know what? I got no problem. My team's an independent. We can't win a conference. I'll take number five because I get another home game. You know, Notre Dame needs another home game. It's just more dough for them. So there really is no downside to this whatsoever. So uh, I think that that is a marvelous thing. Now, the, the catch on all this, as, as much as we're loving it, is that, you know, getting a cart before the horse a little bit, this realignment thing that began with Oklahoma and Texas and now spawned the alliance, and who knows what's going to happen with the Big 12 and the American now mm. moving forward. Uh, they're going to have to see that landscape settle down. That, they're not going to pull the trigger on this nearly as quickly as people want, which might be bothersome to my friends in Bristol. Mm. Uh, because the potential of, of having this become a two-network postseason is very legitimate. Mm. And I also think, and again, I'll say this understanding that I work for uh, Fox and I am part of the competition. I think it's in the best interest of college football to have two entities mm -hmm. involved with its postseason rather than one.
Mm. It certainly helped the NFL when they had more than one entity. Mm. And, and that should be the business model. If there's one thing where the college football should learn from the NFL is that having their product and their content on more than one network is for the common good of their sport. And, and I think we are headed towards that mm. without question. For sure. Tim Brando, this has been a pleasure, man. I, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. This has been incredible. I feel like we could go on and on for hours, and I think that <laughs> leads to a part two of this conversation. But seriously, Tim, I, I can say again, it's been an absolute honor to chat. Thank you all, or thank you so much for the work you continue to do and what you've done. And again, for somebody who is in this new age of media, if you will, I definitely have a ton of respect. And, and, and for, for someone like you who's come up and who has laid the groundwork and has built such a remarkable career, and I see all those trophies and awards behind you and well-deserved. And uh, so this is an honor to get to speak with you. So I truly appreciate it. My pleasure. Remember, uh, sometimes in life, we never get what we deserve, but other times because of the calendar and our good fortune and our stick to we sometimes get what we really don't deserve. And it's been a combination of that uh, for me through the years, Chris. And uh, I really respect what you're doing and others like you are doing. And I'm always here for you whenever you call. Thank you so much. He's Tim Brando. I'm Chris Filtz. We appreciate you guys tuning in. And we'll catch you next time on the episode of the Spurs Up Show.